The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, a couple of items of business before we get started today. First is that we've got food drive coming up and we need more food. So if you're interested in helping with that, if you'd go to our website, you can go to the hub and find out how you can give to that food drive. And the other thing is there is really good news. The Temple Bible Church Missions Garage Sale is coming back. (laughs) We're really excited about that. It's going to be April 8th and 9th. Next year, we like to call it the greatest show on earth here. Raises tens of thousands of dollars for missions. This next year, it's going to go to uh, our, our money will be split between partners on the Arabian Peninsula and Discipleship Unlimited, caring, with incar- or caring for incarcerated ladies here in Central Texas. So next Sunday at 1030, there's a meeting and we need people to organize children's clothes, people to oversee domains, people to help with antiques. We need someone to help with our silent auction and lead the team that will handle that silent auction. The director of social media marketing is already taken. Um, That job belongs to me and it's the most fun I have all year long. Um, So next Sunday, 1030, consider that. Today... Uh, We are continuing in our series on the seven deadly sins, and we're going to talk about anger. Dave and Tim and I read a book, one of the other pastors on staff mentioned this book called Dangerous Virtues, written by John Kosler, that, um, I'm going to get angry if this doesn't light, um, that spoke about the uh, the seven deadly sins and how culture has really turned these sins into virtues, and so today specifically, we're going to talk about anger and justice in an age of outrage. Some people would say that they get angry and their fuse is short, like a stick of dynamite, and it blows up and then it's over. For others, it's a slower burn, kind of like a candle. The problem is, if it burns long enough, you might just melt away. We've all heard and seen anger stories. One of my favorite is the story of Cliff and Janice. Cliff just wanted to mow his lawn. It was Saturday morning. He woke up. He had a power push lawnmower. He'd had it for about a year. It was starting to give him some issues, and he went to crank it, and it cranked and started. And then it died, and it cranked and started again, and it died, and Cliff was a pretty calm guy, but Janice could see him through the kitchen window kind of fencing up, and it seemed like 15, 20, 30 times he pulls the string and the lawnmower won't start, and so Cliff just gave it a light shove and calmly walked toward the house. He walked in the house into the kitchen where Janice was, and she says, are you okay? And he doesn't even answer. He just keeps going. He goes into their bedroom. He turns back around walking just as calmly as before, but she notices something in his hand, and he walks outside with his three fifty seven revolver and puts six shots calmly into the mower and rolls it out to the sidewalk for anyone to pick up for free, Right? Well, how does anger impact you? How does it manifest in your life? In culture, sometimes anger masquerades as a word that we've decided is ugly. I'm not sure if I can use it anymore. You might want to cover your children's ears, right? The word is justice. 
It's a word that some would say we can't even use in the church anymore because of how kind of a secular view of social justice has twisted what the scripture says. But we like our words. We're gonna keep our words. The scripture says that we can't neglect to do justice for the poor, that God is a God of justice and righteousness. There was a time in the 60s when, when there were literally people in churches, leaders in churches that wanted to stop using the word love because of the free love that was going on. We can't even use the word anymore, but I really like the idea that God so loved the world. So, so what we need to do is understand what we mean when we say justice, understand what we mean when we say anger. It may take us a little bit to get there and and understand the two and see how justice is a very good thing and anger can be a very dangerous thing. Well, anger might be what some would consider humanity's natural response to real or perceived injustice. It's a natural response when something actually has happened to you, someone's done something to harm you, and it's also a response when we think someone has done something to harm us. It's different than the wrath of God. Anger tends to be uh, brought out of emotion. Sometimes we can live in an angry state of being. God's wrath is just part of his perfection. It's tied to his holiness. But for us, anger is an issue. With our increased isolation from real relationships, justice can be seen as an excuse or even tragically sometimes an encouragement toward anger, but we have to be careful Someone quipped about the seven deadly sins, and it said of the seven deadly sins, anger has long been the one with the best box of costumes. When the guy in the car next to you rages at you, he's dangerous. When you rage at him, you're just. We understand this. I mean, going 45 miles an hour in the left lane, we can usually recognize the results of anger, especially in others, as destructive and evil. But wait, Chase, the Bible says be angry and do not sin. So obviously you can be angry and not sin, right? Moses got angry. Phineas got angry. Jesus even got angry. He was flipping over tables. And this same Jesus, though, we, we got to say, number one, we're, we're not him, Right? And then this is the Jesus who wept over Jerusalem and loved his enemies. So how do we talk about anger? I'd like to start in James chapter one. James chapter one, verses 19 through 21. James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. That's what we're going to find out. Why should we be slow to anger? Even if it's just anger, because ultimately that anger isn't going to produce the righteousness that God requires. It's going to take something else. Well, maybe, Chase, but maybe not. There's a quote that is attributed it's attributed often to Augustine, but Augustine actually didn't say it. And it says this, hope has two beautiful daughters. Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see they do not need to remain the way they are. Anger at the way things are and courage to see things can't remain this way. And I'd just like to ask the question, is this true? 
I mean, I, th- I think it can be true. There are times when it's true. We see a child harmed and we get angry. We see someone killed in cold blood. We get angry. I, I read a story this week. A friend of mine who's a history buff uh, told me to read Killers of the Flower Moon. If you like history, it's a great stocking stuffer. Um, it's about the Osage tribe in Oklahoma. They were given this kind of horrible piece of land that everyone thought was worthless, except there was something under the land called oil. And the Osage became really, really wealthy in the 1900s and 1910s, and then people came in and began marrying the Osage so that they would receive their inheritance. And the Osage began to die, some of them in very non-mysterious ways like bullets to the head. Others began to die and it was revealed that they were being poisoned. This awful story, you read it and you just think that's horrible. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's unjust. It's against God's design and order Like Abel's blood in Genesis 4, blood cries out from the ground. People are made in the image of God, so injustice against anyone should bother you and me like we get bothered when we feel we've been treated unjustly. There there are three mistakes that we tend to make as it relates to anger, And, and the first is that when we get angry, we tend to exclude the person we're angry at from the community of humans. We don't think about them like they're made in the image of God and we tend to exclude ourselves from the community of people called sinners. We think, I'd I'd never do that, right? That's one thing we do. The other is that we just roll our eyes at injustice because we think it doesn't impact us when in reality, injustice anywhere does lead lead to a problem with justice everywhere. And then the third mistake is that we don't like that something has occurred or we don't like the outcome of something and we angrily take justice into our own hands. See, the scripture calls us to seek justice for the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner among us. It even tells us heaven itself is waiting for justice. They're martyrs, Revelation tells us. They've been killed for their faith and they're under the altar and they're crying out to God, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? They are waiting for justice, but what do we do with our anger? Where do we take it? How long do we stay in anger? Because the anger of man will not produce the righteousness of God. Well, there's some things we've got to know. Number one, true justice is a biblical virtue. It's a foundational requirement of the law. It's a basic standard of equity, impartiality. It's different than being quick to anger. So for instance, when a law is broken, the system should work to punish those who break the law and those harmed should get to a place of forgiveness if we are in Christ. I think one of the most glaring examples of this happened on June 17th, 2015, when Dylan Roof walked into an African-American church in Charleston, South Carolina, and killed nine people, including a pastor and a senator. And then three days later, at his arraignment, there were the victim's families, five of those families, looking at him and saying, I forgive you. And I'm praying for your soul. 
can't imagine how hard it must have been to say those words out loud and how those families are, are probably still working out what it looks like to forgive the loss that they've incurred. They forgave, but Dylan Roof has to pay the state for his crimes. He got life imprisonment without parole from the state. He got the death penalty from federal government. See, justice can happen and forgiveness can happen, but anger can't happen. Now, a couple of caveats. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness takes one. To be reconciled, two parties come and the offended expresses their pain and the offender expresses repentance and then reconciliation can begin to occur. But forgiveness just takes one person saying, I'm gonna take this pain, I'm going to absorb it, I'm gonna take it on myself and it's gonna be debt canceled. Another caveat is that some of you in this room have walked through some really awful things. You've experienced trauma and it may take years and years and years to work through the anger. Most of us deal with anger at offenses far smaller, even when we're told not to be easily angered in Christ. I guess how often you, depend, you, you deal with anger on a smaller level could depend on uh, how much you love a certain football team or not, right? <laughs> Personal anger, we have it. Sometimes we feel entitled to it. We feel justified in it. But I think the scripture might indicate that our understanding of when we have righteous anger and God's understanding are different. Just listen to the word, Proverbs 4, 14, 29, and 30. James is quoting these passages. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit takes a city. Well, why should we be slow to anger, Chase? Do you know it's just so much easier to be angry? I, angry, I do know. I'm going to tell you about some of my anger in a moment. But the reason we ought to be slow to anger is because God is slow to anger. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, in the greatest of all cosmic offenses, we are the offenders, God is the offended, and he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So just like Peter says we should be holy because God is holy, we in Christ ought to be slow to anger because God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and because anger doesn't just harm the people we get angry at. Anger kills us. Theologian Frederick Buechner says it this way. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last twosome morsel, both the pain you've been given and the pain you might just give back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback, though, is that what you're wolfing down is your self. The skeleton at the feast is you. Well, what does a life consumed by anger look like? 
Every, every Wednesday, we as a staff go over whatever text or topic that we are going to be teaching that week. And this week, as we were going over this, Casey Burke asked this question. He said, what does a life consumed with anger look like? And we began to talk about it. Some people said maybe it looks like the Incredible Hulk, right? The, the green guy shows up whenever he wants. Or maybe it looks like Batman. There's this picture of Bruce Wayne who's on a quest to avenge the death of his parents He's going to be a hero through vigilante vengeance. But what what might it look like in in real life? I I think it might be more subtle. It might look like workaholism. You get so angry. Maybe it's something done to you yesterday, maybe a month ago, maybe years ago, that you just pour yourself into work. You become a workaholic so you don't have to think about the pain. It might look like workaholism or it might look like alcoholism or drug abuse, you might just decide to medicate the anger away so that you'll be numb and the anger won't rise up. It might look like you're angry at something at home so much that you bring it to work and your coworkers, the people who work over you, the people who work under you, they can feel the tension when you walk into the room. You might be so angry about something at work that when you come home, your spouse and your children are walking on eggshells. They don't want to be the straw that breaks the camel's back this day. A life consumed with anger has led people to leave jobs, to leave friendships, to leave their family, to leave their church, to leave their city. So as we talked about this Wednesday, Dave Tate sent me some diagnostic questions for us. I had a miserable time going through them. He asked these questions to our high school students several years ago, and I thought they were great. Do you continually replay in your mind with great detail a negative past event and dislike the persons involved? Do you do that? You just replay it over and over in your mind and you just grow in your anger toward the people who harmed you. Do you continually refer to someone in a negative way because of some past hurt? Do you just continue on and on? You can't let it go. Do you avoid certain people because you're angered by their presence? I asked this last hour and somewhere back over there, somebody said, I do. Do you find your dislike for someone growing over time? Do you have a dartboard with someone's face on it? I mean, several people, right? Well, don't we all, we can see it in others, right? We've got that one friend who, even months, years, or decades later, just can't stop talking about this one thing that was done to harm him. It comes up over and over and he just won't let it go away. He becomes defined by the pain from that moment and he just can't let it go. See, I think that's what a life consumed by anger looks like. And it's tragic to see. We, when we quote the scripture about anger, we tend to say, be angry and do not sin. But here's something Jesus said about anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Well, goodness, we're all in trouble, right? We need a savior. Great Western novelist Louis L'Amour said, anger is a killing thing. It kills the man who angers. And each rage 
leaves him less than he had been before. It takes something from him. When I, when I read this this week, I thought about Gollum and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, how the further he dives into sin, the less human he becomes. Anger does that to us. Oh, can I tell you about the last time I got really, really angry? It was October 9th, 2021, and I was fishing. Uh, about a week after the ice storm, my wife, I walked in from work, and my wife looked at me, and she goes, you're tired. And I said, yeah, I didn't sleep well last night. And she goes, no, like, you're tired. I want you to call Brad Hill, buddy of mine in Alabama. Call Brad and tell him next time he goes fly fishing, you want to go fly fishing. Well, hear me. If I said to Laura, hey, I want to go fly fishing with Brad, she'd go, yeah, great. But for her to tell me, hey, go fly fishing, I thought, oh, I must be tired. And she winked and said, give him a call before I change my mind, big boy. So I go with my friend Brad, some other friends, and we're in North Georgia, this really cool little town. The fishing was not great. It had rained like four days straight before we got there, so the water's really stained. But we're going one day with guides, and we get in the boat with a guide, and we're out with the guide on a really calm lake, not catching fish. And so we're, we're just making small talk, right? And um. And so as we're talking, we talk about this little town, cool town, great restaurants, fun little shops, community place. And he says, yeah, but it's just not like it used to be. And he begins to talk about the problems in his town. And he says, we could solve all these problems. And then he makes this overt racist statement about Georgia's history. And you, you might be new here, you might not know, I have a... Uh, an African-American son, I've got a biracial son. Um, the statement was a problem really for anybody of goodwill and decent understanding. And so there's just dead silence. Probably for about five minutes, it felt like 20 minutes. And so then I, I asked, hey, do you have any children? And he said, yeah, I've, I've got a son. And he thought I asked him, did he have any children because I cared that's not why I asked. I asked so that he would ask me if I have any children, right? And so he said, do you have any children? And I said, yeah, I do. I've got a 21-year-old daughter. She just got married. Beautiful, wonderful girl. Married a great guy. Described my daughter. And I said, and she's white. And he just kind of looked at me funny, right? Because I, I happen to be white as well. And I've got a 17-year-old son, blonde hair, likes the guitar, does really well at Latin. He's white. He looks at me, okay. And then I have an 11-year-old son adopted from Rwanda, and he's just got the tightest little curls, ball fade, cute line, a smile that can light up a room. Like the water's still, but you can feel the fish going under rocks, right? <laughs> then I've got a little 7-year-old boy who's white that we adopted. He's really, really funny, great with expressions, loved outdoors. And then we have a 6-year-old biracial son that has the best curls in the world. Somebody actually came up to me between service and said, my granddaughter has the best girl curls in the world. And I thought they were great. They're probably the second best, right? But I described this and I just said, I, I got to be honest, I'm, I'm really not sure the world that you're describing is the world that I want for my children. And my, my buddy, who's a 260 pound triathlete, said, yeah, that's not the world I want either. Well, that's what happened above the water. But let me tell you what was happening below the water. I, I was just so 
angry and it just grew and grew and grew. I thought maybe Brad will throw him overboard. Like that would just be amazing. Enjoy your swim, right? And then I began to think that the, the fishing guide, I will not tell you his name, but he's kind of famous in the world of fishing guides. He's been on documentaries, sponsored by multiple rod companies. So I just began to work in my mind. I'll email his rod companies. He'll never work again. I mean, just thinking horrible, horrible things. So we finish our fishing trip. We pay, we tip because that's the right thing to do. We go away, we're talking about the experience and the next day the boss of the company calls my, my friend and says, hey, I'm sorry you guys didn't catch any fish. Was the trip okay otherwise? And my buddy said, no, it really wasn't. And he tells him what went on and he just said it was just an awful trip. Hear me, we don't want this guy to lose his job or anything like this, but understand, we don't want to hear that when we're fishing. And the guy said, well, do I need to call Chase? Does this person need to call Chase? And Brad said, no. No, Chase is going to forgive him. Well, thanks, Brad. <laughs> but, I, but I am. I'm not gonna overlook it. It's painful, it hurts, and I wanna take that pain upon myself and receive it. And let me, let me tell you a couple reasons why that's true. One is because when I was just growing in anger at this guy, I thought back to another time about 12 years ago, my wife and I were driving on this country road in Louisiana and somebody in my family had done something really, really hurtful and I was so angry and I felt that, but not the anger, not the solving of a problem. I remember just how empty I felt. And I remember saying at that moment, I've got to let go of this anger and forgive or it will kill me. It'll make me into a person I don't want to be in Christ. And so I've purposed in my heart to forgive by the grace of God. Well, how do we do that? I need help from the Lord. I need help from his spirit. I need help from his word. How do we extinguish the flames of anger? and walk in the light of forgiveness and grace. I think the prophet Micah gives an answer when he speaks about what God requires of us. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, to act justly is simply to do the right thing, to make sure the right thing happens, to call out for justice sometimes, to seek justice, but not to do so in anger. Why? Because justice is not outrage, neither is it revenge. Justice is righteousness, which is first received as a gift, right? God made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a righteousness apart from the law. It comes by faith. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Justice is not outrage, neither is it revenge. It's righteousness which is first received as a gift and then displayed as a testimony of God's grace. So those who truly do justice, also love mercy. What does God require of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God? Well, what does this look like? Proverbs tells us what it looks like. Romans tells us what it looks like. Proverbs 25, 
21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. See, people who deserve a harsh response don't know what to do with a kind one. A gentle answer turns away wrath because people who act in wrath are expecting wrath in return. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's just airtight, isn't it? Never avenge yourselves. You guys know what the Greek word for never means? Never. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See this guy that offended me? Either he will come to know Christ, in which case all of his sins, even those against mine, were laid against me, were laid on Jesus, and Jesus took the full punishment on his behalf. Or he will not know Christ and will experience justice from God in a way that I wouldn't want and you wouldn't want, we wouldn't want for our worst enemies. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, when we don't leave room for the wrath of God, when we think justice has to be in my hands for this offense against me, we don't act like people who believe God will judge justly. We act like people who don't believe God will judge justly. But Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Scripture turns our concept of anger on its head. Well, how? Well, because injustice is ingrained to the flow of human history. And every time and every place and every culture, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we labor toward it being the way it's supposed to be. To be sure, we labor toward that. But only one man has ever reversed the flow of injustice in the world. And he did not do it through his anger, but he did it through forgiveness. When he nailed to a cross, looked at the people crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I'm going to tell you about my least favorite quote in this book that we read. Uh, it almost made me angry, right? It says, mercy belongs only to the guilty. Well, do you want mercy from God? I want mercy from God. My goodness. I want it to be new every day. I want his faithfulness to be great every day. I want his compassion to not fail, which means I'm guilty. Mercy belongs to the guilty. 
This is us. That's why Ephesians 4, 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's why Colossians 3, 13 says, we're to bear with one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. We love our enemies because Jesus loved his enemies. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We forgive because the wrath of God that justly belonged to us was put on Jesus and he has forgiven us in Christ. So by his spirit, we put off anger and malice and we put on forgiveness and grace and love. And the spirit uses the word of God to help us do this. First Peter The end of chapter one says, all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news. This word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. If we've tasted forgiveness, then we forgive. See, our anger is often about what we think we deserve. Someone's treated us unjustly and we think we deserve better, and sometimes we do. But we also deserve justice from God, and it's not what we've received in Christ. Hear me. I understand that forgiveness seems like a great idea until we have someone to forgive, right? But merciful mindsets flow or overflow from communion with God. We commune with a God who has forgiven us, who's shown mercy to us. So to forgive, we remember the forgiveness we've received and we trust God to be our help and our protector and to bring about justice and set all things right. And we remember his faithfulness, not just to us, but to all of his people through all generations. Well, but what about angry, Chase? I really like that option better. <laughs> See, but the anger of man will not achieve the righteousness of God. It won't achieve the solution you're looking for. You and I can, can wrestle with our anger. We can... Think about our anger, we can pray about our anger, but our anger is not going to bring about justice. Why? Because there's a better way. There's a better way. Are the daughters of justice, anger, and courage? See, those who do justice love mercy, and they love mercy because they walk humbly with their God. Justice is an offspring of hope that has two beautiful daughters. Their names are grace and truth and they're given to us by Jesus Christ. See, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, how do we be a people who walk in grace and truth? We remember our state before we knew Christ and we see 
where we are now as God's children. I think one of the great pictures of this in literature comes from Victor Hugo's classic, Les Miserables, the, the central character, Jean Valjean, he gets out of prison and he's welcomed in by Bishop Muriel and his wife and while he's at their house, they, they clothe him, they feed him. They really don't have anything valuable except their silverware, their plates and these two silver candlesticks. Well, as soon as the bishop is asleep, Jean Valjean leaves the candlesticks, but he grabs the plates. He grabs the silverware. He grabs some bread and he's off. But shortly after he leaves the bishop's house, he's caught and the police bring him back. They're gonna make him confess to the bishop before they take him back to prison. He's expecting arrest and accusation. But instead, he gets forgiveness. The bishop says there's been an awful mistake. The silver was actually a gift. And he says to Jean Valjean, I'm I'm sorry you left so quickly. You forgot the candlesticks that you were supposed to take as well. And then he instructs Jean Valjean to use the money from the sale of silver and candlesticks to start living a better and more virtuous life. The bishop's sacrificial actions, John Kostler says, go beyond justice to mercy. The novel goes on to depict Valjean once this miserable sinner is redeemed and restored. He's radically transformed. He becomes an honest businessman and not just that, he becomes a benefactor to those in need. He passes away in a room illuminated by two candles, each held by one of the candlesticks that had been graciously given to him by Bishop Muriel. As he breathes his last, he lays back with his head turned to the sky and the light from two candlesticks fell on his face. See, God has offered us the candlesticks of grace and truth through Jesus so that we can live free from anger, full of forgiveness because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God inside us. So we've really got to let the grace and truth of Jesus be like tongs from the altar that God uses to burn away our anger. They got to, Grace and truth inside us have to burn like bright candles that light the way for us to live forgiven and free from anger. Are you angry? Is there somebody you're just so hurt by and just so mad at that you just can't let it go? You won't be free until you do. I know the pain of that anger. I know it's not easy. But in Christ, there is a way toward forgiveness and freedom. Let's take just two or three minutes. If you just bow your heads as you stand up, we're going to sing in a minute. But would you just bow your heads? Just consider. Is there anger you need to lay aside? Are there people that you need to forgive? Are there people you need to seek forgiveness from because your anger is being poured out on them? Just take a few moments to be with the Lord and I'll pray for us. Thank mm-hmm. you.
God, would you help us to be a people who are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry? God, would you help us to put off anger and malice and wrath and put on humility and kindness and love and patience and forgiveness? God, I pray for people in this room who have been deeply harmed, who know today, no matter how long it takes, no matter what wrestling that's left to be done, that the only path to freedom is through forgiveness. And so, God, would you help us to be a people by the power of your Holy Spirit who forgive like we've been forgiven. Help us to count our count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to you. Redeem, transform, change by your grace. Would you do your work in us today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.